Hello and welcome back to the Authentic Artistry podcast with me, Kitty Bazalgette, as your host. This is the podcast in which we explore what it means to find authenticity as a performer. How do we find it? How do we express it on stage? And to try and answer just some of those questions that it throws up for yourself in the process. All of the things that don't quite fit into a minute and a half video on Instagram. Now grab yourself a cup of something and let's get into the podcast. Just before we start today, I have to apologise for the sound quality in this episode, as I didn't have my external mic for this recording, so sadly it's not the best audio today. Really sorry about that, I hope it doesn't distract too much from this wonderful guest. Now on to the podcast. With a love for crossing musical boundaries and bringing together musicians and music from all over the world, Eliza Marshall is passionate about the binding qualities that cross-cultural music making has to offer. Her love of folk and world music sees her playing a wide range of different flutes, whistles and bansuris in a variety of different styles and contexts. She has recorded on film soundtracks, toured with bands and even appeared in a ballet. I'm also lucky enough to call her family. Eliza, welcome to Authentic Artistry. Hello, Kitty. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. I always start with five quick fire questions that normally end up being not so quick fire. So the first one, what does authentic artistry mean to you? Well, I guess the very simple and obvious interpretation of being true to yourself as a creator. We're in this um, because we love it, hopefully, and it's a vocation. Um, so we have to hold on to that it gets lost sometimes as well but like you say it's so important to hold on to onto that that core quality speaking of qualities what are three qualities or capabilities in other musicians or creatives that inspire you oh interesting what are three qualities so obviously I love I mean I love working with a huge array of musicians and various different creatives. I like teams. I like people who are team players. I think that's really important and it's really important to give one another space when you're collaborating and to be able to sort of hand the baton of leadership, I suppose, when you're in various different groups and know when it's right to step forward and when it's right to step backwards. So I have experienced that with people that I've worked with who I really admire who are great leaders but then also know when to step back and give other people space to have their own voice and I really love that I think that's a great quality then I suppose musicians who are from completely different backgrounds to me so I as you've mentioned, I play various different styles. I'd say I've got, I'm fairly multifaceted as a musician, but I essentially walked down the classical path and, and did a, a degree in classical music. Um, but I, I've loved over the years going to different countries, sitting in a tiny bar in Cameroon, hearing somebody shake uh, an amazing percussion instrument or get this tiny little plastic tube out of their pocket that's got a couple of holes in it and that's been turned into a strange type of flute and it's 
you know, it's it's an amazing sound and completely different scale. That's really, really inspiring. It takes you away from the structure that we're very used to, particularly in the West, I suppose, growing up on that very structured musical path. So those are two things I love. I love people who also, I guess, aren't restricted by the shoulds and shouldn'ts of, um, of any genre. So I love saying, yes, we can try this, or yes, we can connect um, two completely different styles or totally different players, and that, um, that that's allowed, that people aren't inhibited by rules. I love those answers so much. I feel so inspired just hearing you talk about that. Just really the essence of, of music making and, and, and creation. Yeah, really cool qualities to, to admire in other people. I feel like this question might be quite difficult for you. Okay. <laughs> what was the last concert that you went to watch? Oh my goodness. <laughs> Last Friday, with my folk band Ranagrai, we played at a big St. Patrick's parade um, and a massive concert in the pavilions in Plymouth. And then we were one of a few bands, and the band after us was a big folk band. But And I stayed to watch them. I don't suppose I um, specifically was there for them, but that it was very exciting and it was a lovely gig. Um, in fact, the last thing that I went to see was a musical um, in January and it was Mandela um, oh, cool. at the Young Vic and I had been part of workshopping the music back in summer 22 and um, and it was by two um, South African guys and it was supported by the Mandela family and it was a brilliant production actually and it was that was really empowering and really interesting and I'm a quite a fan of finding out about Mandela and his life and and what he did so that was yeah that was really inspiring um and prior to that I couldn't tell you a concert that I've been to which is horrendous if you could have dinner with any musician former or creative from history living or dead who would it be and why are you allowed to have more than one or do you just have to have one mm, you can have a small a small dinner party could I? Okay, so at my dinner party on my little boat, where I can fit about five people, if this is a really interesting answer, actually, and probably shows why I am, how I am now. So Steve Reich, um, Paul Simon, Joni Mitchell, Peter Gabriel, and there's an, one other space there. So who would that be for? I mean, I think I have to say this. Sorry to everybody who, who might think this is a crazy bunch of people, but I'd have to have James Galway. And the, the reason for all of those are, so I'm obsessed with minimalism and the influence of African rhythms on um, Western music. And Steve Reich, I think, really explored that a lot with how he wrote a lot of the rhythms that he writes. I love a lot of his music. Um, and I'd just love to sit and listen to it with him. I think it'd be really extraordinary. Paul Simon, I grew up listening to, and equally, he had these amazing influences from all over the world with his music. And I and I, I absolutely loved all of his albums. 
Joni Mitchell is who she is, isn't she? She's just, she's a wonderful poet. Um, and then an amazing deliverer of her, of her words. Peter Gabriel I've toured with a lot and he inspired a lot of the stuff I'm doing now. He's a very special human and he was actually associated with N N Nelson Mandela through the elders, which was a group that of, you know, incredible humans kind of looking out for the world, should we say. Mm. So that really inspired me. And then James Galway, it was because of a cassette that I had of him playing with the Chieftains that I took up the flute. So I couldn't not have him at my dinner party. Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna come to that that reference after after this last final not so quick fire question. <laughs> How would you describe your music or work to someone who had never met you before? I would say I'm a classically trained flautist. I have um, a job in the West End and I my heart is in music from all over the world and bringing all those threads together. That's such a nice and very representative uh, description, I think, of, of your life. So you mentioned before in, in, in the question that this cassette of, of James Galway was, was the reason that you picked up the flute. And I, I wanted to ask, what was, your, what was your introduction to the flute and where did, where did your love of, of flute begin? So yeah, really, it was just a little um, cassette. I started out on the violin when I was about six or seven. Um, actually, now, as probably happens, as we all get older, you can look back and think, oh, I wish I'd continued with that as well. I love the violin. Um, but um, I then got this cassette of the Chieftains with James Galway, and I, I was absolutely sold. I loved the pureness of the sound of a flute. And also on that cassette, you get lots of whistles and you get Illan pipes, which are the Irish, essentially the Irish bagpipes. Um, and it just touched me somehow. It was such a raw sound um, that that was it. Next Christmas, there was a little flute and I, I haven't looked back, really. I was obsessed with it. I can't even remember the idea that I had to practice. It wasn't a thing particularly though I'm sure there are lots of things I could have done more practice on as I was growing up but just playing my flute was a real joy um, and, and no doubt inspired by James Galway and and what I like now is looking back in a way with the perspective that I have which is that James Galway whilst he played with the Chieftains and whilst many people might know him for his commercial side where he's done tracks like the Pink Panther or Annie's song he was also principal flute of the Berlin Phil for several years which is one of the top orchestras in the world as we know so he trod an amazing path very authentically I would say because everything was to the most phenomenal standard you can't be in the Berlin Phil without being an extraordinary player but then allowing himself to also play something commercial or play with one of the best folk bands in the world absolutely sort of suits my outlook on how we should be as musicians. And if you were to describe that outlook on how you, how we should be musicians, what would that be? Well, I suppose it comes back to your very first question of what is authentic artistry? Why do we go into it? What is it we strive to do? I mean, I'm in my early 40s now and looking back at people who are just graduating or people in their 
in their early mid twenties. What, how did I feel then? What, what was my outlook then? And I think it was probably very similar, which was just that I wanted to perform and I wanted to be playing my flute um, and looking out for whatever opportunity could come my way was really exciting. Um, whilst gently as I got older, being able to craft it so that it was very true to what I love as a musician and what music I love or what genres I think can work together and not have to be pigeonholed. Yeah, it's interesting that you had it already since since kind of your your mid-twenties of being knowing, okay, I want to play and kind of allowing yourself to explore that your own authenticity with with the flute. It's hard, isn't it, when you are when you first graduate and actually essentially what you want to be doing is saying yes to everything and being available, um, which is really exciting. Uh, but what can come out of that is then this sort of, it's like a sculpture, isn't it? I always had this lovely idea of like, you can be given this big block of clay and you put it on the turntable and you've just got to, it's so malleable. You've got to just be really gentle in how you create whatever vase or pot you're trying to make, which essentially is your life. Um, and you might discover you were going to make this really big bulbous pot and then actually you don't really like that. And can you maneuver it so that it's actually a long, tall, elegant pot? And and I kind of like that idea that we never know, but that we have to stay focused and we can't just suddenly, we could just change it all, but basically you'll be le left with your big blob of clay again, instead of actually just gently going, okay, I've put all my time and effort into this, but I want to move it this way now. And these are the things that I love and these are the experiences I've had and how can I put them into action? Sort of using the shape that you're creating and still being able to mould it into new directions, but using what you already have to, to create it. Yeah, exactly that. I really like that, that analogy. It also gives this impression of, of it still keeping moving and, yeah. and not stopping and it not being static. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? I'm going off on a tangent immediately, I can tell. But in a way, you're touching on what we've all just experienced by having a pandemic sort of suddenly come along. And we've all been on these treadmills. And then actually something did come along that has either made us all go, right, we have to stop absolutely what we're doing. Or actually, instead of being static and or having to stop what do we do to get around that and how do we work out how we can still work and what we're going to do during a time like that and that actually um without belittling the severe consequences of a time like that on lots of people that was actually very refreshing mentally I think to to be able to have that time what was your experience of 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 the pandemic both kind of personally uh, like what did it give you personally and and what did it give you musically okay cool well I mean I love this question <laughs> because I think it's very important you know for all generations this has been a massive point in history and um it's good to move on from it but it's really important to see what we've suffered and what we've gained so I'm going to focus on what I've gained 
which is that time off the treadmill at that point in my life when I I have been very busy has it gave me space to really know what I wanted to focus on and really have the time to do that so again all the things I've touched on like building a nice team to do a nice project that I worked on um collaborations pushing myself outside of my comfort zone completely whether it's as simple as doing something like this or doing a live Facebook something or other that is absolutely not my comfort zone that was so brilliant uh, and really vital I think in a whole new like a rebirth of almost confidence and allowing ourselves to be authentic because we didn't have any other influences around us. We weren't seeing people day to day. We weren't, apart from social media, we weren't checking up on whether people liked our performances or, and it's like it gave our spirits time to just breathe and rest. And I feel like I've come back to the industry very refreshed and madly in love with music and music, music making and also in control of what I think about my music making as opposed to what do I think others think about my music making. And that is such a huge change for me mentally that I never want to lose touch with that. That's really, really important. And then I suppose that touches on how, um, how it affected me personally. Um, a very similar kind of response, I suppose, that just being able to have the time to see my family, even if it was via Zoom or take my dog for a walk, cook a nice meal, things that actually in a very uh, full and non-stop musician's work life, you don't often get to do. So that's something I'm trying to hold on to now as well, learning to say no to stuff. because Just because it's there and it's offered doesn't mean that we have to do it. And that actually sometimes there are priorities in our personal lives that are more important. Such a huge shift in, uh, in mindset. And the words that were coming to my head while you were saying that was like this idea of being able to tend to your soul in this moment and then you can take that out when things opened up again now you have this more of an understanding of how to tend to yourself to make sure that you have a kind of more complete all-rounded aspect of your life both as musician and as daughter partner sister friend cousin cousin I hate to say it's an epiphany, but I think it almost is for lots of people because especially, again, as musicians, we graduate and we get straight on this sort of treadmill of saying yes to everything. And, it's, you know, I, I'm a massive forager. I love, I loved in my 20s, if work wasn't there, I would find it and I would make yeah. something happen. Or, And that's that was so exciting. And I still get a thrill out of that, um, that kind of attitude. But nonetheless actually being able to say I can't work for the next 18 months or certainly not at 100 miles an hour I'm going to work at 20 miles an hour it's just something that isn't um, ingrained in a musician's psyche and and it should be really because I think 
time and space and downtime are really important to lots of the things that you talk about on your authentic artistry about um giving yourself space to then to, to not you know send yourself crazy with your own thoughts or and sleep and downtime are really important for that and your mental well-being yeah and giving giving creativity the space that it needs in order to to flourish as well I think it can sometimes be quite an impatient process but sometimes you just have to wait and have a little bit of space yes absolutely I mean I think sometimes interestingly when you've asked about who I'd have to dinner I'm I'm amazed at myself that I haven't sort of found any huge wonderful classical composers or classical musicians but actually maybe that does say something about some of my musical icons you mentioned a couple of of times the the study and so you studied at conservatoire how what was that experience like for you so I was at the Royal Academy of Music I absolutely loved it I had an amazing time I was very very lucky I think I had the the best teacher I could possibly have, have ever had Uh, He was principal flute at the LSO at the time, and he's now, for years, he's been principal at BBC Symphony Orchestra, Michael Cox. And he really got me. He totally understood that I was slightly eccentric, slightly wacky in my outlook. Um, I would sometimes turn up with a Chinese folk melody and say, look, I'm really sorry, I haven't practised the Prokofiev sonata today, but can we just just have a little look at this? Because I love... I love the different ornaments and I'd love to see how they work on the Western flute. And, and that probably frustrated him, but I felt like he really nurtured that in me. And I think that is one of the most important things that any of us can have actually is really finding the right teachers to connect with who really, really understand us. So I had, I had an amazing time and I also had an amazing year. So I, I am still in touch and playing with a lot of my contemporaries from that time, which is incredible actually you know that's we graduated over 20 years ago and and that's really wonderful and very special and you never know who you'll meet and who who you keep in touch with and who influences which part of your life as well I think the project I did during uh those lockdowns was called freedom to roam and the harpist in that Catherine Finch is she was in my year in fact she lived with the clarinetist who's in my trio so it's uh it's really amazing and it means you can you can share where you are now with your lives but you can also go back um and memory lane is always a good thing having mentioned freedom to roam can you talk a little bit about what it was um why it came about and how it relates to you and your own authentic artistry so i would say freedom to roam was an idea just before COVID hit. Um, I wanted to do something. I'd been working in all the things that I do um, and I'd been in the show that I'm in for several years. Um, and I wanted to do something where I really felt my music was could be beneficial um, or represent some of the things that I really strongly believe in. Um, I, as many of us do, looking after our beautiful planets, looking out for one another, um and how the effect of music can be so potent um again i sort of hearken back to peter gabriel and 
Mandela and people like that who have inspired me over the years. So then COVID hit and it sort of changed my ideas, but actually probably for the better. So ultimately it was to be just a concert and a recording of a whole new album that would raise some money for uh, a few charities. It then ended up being a new album written with by myself, Donal Rogers, who's my other half, um, Catherine Finch, the harpist, and Jackie Shave, who was leader at Britain Symphonia at the time, um, and somebody that I toured with a lot and I have huge admiration for as a violinist and composer. Um, but it became apparent as the project developed that I really wanted it to have more focus, not just on the music, but also about the stories. Um, it was really about hope. It's about compassion. Uh, it's about empowering sol positive solutions. And so I decided to employ or commission a short documentary, um, Nicholas Jones, an amazing documentary director came on board and we we harnessed you know some really wonderful people who appeared in the documentary Virginia McKenna from the Born Free film and her son Will Travers um, an amazing man called Alan Watson Featherston who really brought me to tears when he was just talking about um, rewilding Glen Affric in Scotland it was just so positive and so uplifting to see what this beautiful man had done with his life um a lady who got 50,000 acorns planted and and planted them with hundreds of school children from Glasgow just before COP26 um who else did we have involved there are a couple of others and it was just so uplifting I was just so amazed by by actually being involved with that I co-produced it um, and then just to sort of finish the, the trio, if you like, of the project, we also got a visual artist involved and she took lots of her own kind of visual interpretations of the music, but also snippets of photography from the documentary and kind of cross-referenced it within the visual artwork that was then projected behind us as we performed the album and the album essentially was like a soundtrack so it wasn't lots of different tracks or songs it was just one big soundtrack with this amazing visual artwork behind us after everyone had just watched our documentary so it was a massive undertaking sort of accidentally <laughs> but um probably one of the most inspiring things I've I've ever curated or put together I remember hearing I couldn't come to any of the dates, but I remember hearing from mum and dad that they went to the one in St George's in, in Bristol yes. and, and they were they were blown away by it. They thought it was absolutely amazing. And I've heard I've heard um parts of the of the music as well. And yeah, it's 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 really very cool. It's I was so inspired watching the whole, yeah, some of your process of what was going on behind that and and seeing little clips and things it was yeah such an interesting project and so so relevant um to to current affairs because I think yeah. the the album's called uh like freedom to roam the rhythms of migration right yes exactly that and I think what was what was beautiful so for me freedom to roam it's not specifically about the right to roam which is obviously very 
um, huge topic in England at the moment, but it was inspired by the fact that in Scotland, we there is the right to roam. Everyone, nobody is trespassing on land at any point. And if you take that, and they call it freedom to roam in Scotland sometimes, also in Sweden and various bits of Scandinavia. And if you take um, that idea and you broaden it, so you're not just talking about walking on Dartmoor, but you're talking about, shall we say, without being political or controversial, displaced peoples, um, why are they roaming? Where are they coming from and why are they coming? And where, you know, and and really trying to understand those because they're they're really vital topics to talk about um, and and particularly important to one of the composers, Jackie, um, refugees and understanding what they go through and, and their freedom to or lack of freedom to roam as we see more and more. Also looking at the migration of a swallow, you know, what boundaries do they see in the world? Not really any, except for their own physical boundaries, possibly. Um, isn't that amazing? Um, a lion that's kept in a circus in a cage. Is that okay? Are we all right with that? Where's its freedom to roam? And so it's not just about land, access to land to walk on. And it's not just about freeing a giraffe from a zoo or allowing a refugee to enter a country that they aren't from. It's about understanding. Mm. It's about understanding all of those. A call for empathy, I think, is the main thing that comes to my mind. Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, our, our kind of strapline, I suppose, is empowering positive solutions through music, film and visual art. And it's about, I mean, throughout this project, just finding people who are doing wonderful things, you know, and whether it's for nature, climate, other humans, whatever it be, there are some amazing things going on and we don't hear about that. We we hear about all of the tragedies and negative things in the world and actually if we could bombard ourselves. And, and again, I think this almost ties into being an authentic musician is that if we can... I don't think I started this project because I thought it would tick a box or be relevant to lots of people. I started it because I strongly believed and felt strongly about lots of the topics that I wanted to, to write about and present. Um, I suppose I'm a glass half full kind of person and I like to, as much as I can, push that out into the world through what it is that I do as a musician. And even though it wasn't, it was never done because of wanting to tick a box. What was the, what was the response like? I mean, we've had the most amazing response. Um, we had, we did six gigs. We had standing ovations at all of them. It was a, it's still a difficult time. I would say our challenge at the moment with any kind of performance is really still trying to make sure we get decent sized audiences. I think marketing is high up on the agenda for lots of musicians and promoters these days. Um, but the, we had wonderful audiences. We had standing ovations. We got five-star reviews. Um, it's been very well received. And yeah, I mean, I'm excited. There are lots of things in the pipeline with the whole project. And there's a, there are two more films on the horizon and thus two more albums to go with them. So um 
yeah, very excited. I mean, I think because it again it fell during COVID, it meant that I had to look totally outside of any box that I had ever known about to do with funding and support. And actually, we did a we did a really successful Kickstarter campaign. We raised eleven grand. We got Arts Council funding. We got funding from the Royal Phil- Philharmonic Society. Things I would never have thought to do. So it was good. I wanted to ask you about about the fundraising part because I remember you saying it was like the first it was the first time you were doing uh, this kind of funding applications and it's often something that is not taught in conservatoires more so recently there is a bit I know where I study there's a, a little bit about that but what would what did you learn from from doing those those applications and and starting your own project from scratch? I mean, honestly, Kitty, if I could go back now or if I could go into all the conservatoires and give a tutorial about all those sorts of things, I think it's something that we should all be learning about when we're at music college. And there's probably a whole load of other things like social media and marketing that we probably need to know about, actually. And even, again, things like this tech, being able to record at home, um, knowing how to put a podcast together, just lots of things that lots of people are doing, which are really exciting, but um, could probably do with really being taught by experts um, at a young, a younger age. So I wish I'd have known more about funding and how to um, support creative ideas um, when I was in my 20s, I suppose. I, I didn't know that and I didn't look for any kind of assistance in that way but actually it's it's amazing what is out there and how when you do get funding it really focuses you because you've had to really think the process through of exactly what the project is it isn't just a sort of little pipe dream it's an absolutely structured application so you have to stick to that structure and I think again for musicians that's really helpful because we need deadlines we make a lot of our own deadlines in our own creative projects and that's quite hard. Yeah, it's it's something that I think people are often scared to to do. I think because there is so much unknown about it, how to even start, where to look, and then that can really put people off because it's not it's not been laid out clearly of how do I even get this process started. Yes. I mean, I think now you're making me think about it. Um so I have a band called Ranagrai. We've been going for about 10 years. And when we started, I think I would generally describe myself as a bit of a tigger. Every, life is just so exciting. Collaborations are exciting. You know, um, I think I had endless enthusiasm. I think I still do. But I think now that I am a little bit older, I would probably be enthusiastic about lots of things, but I take time to really think through whether they are things I want to be involved with. And I think um, when we started the band, it was just this exciting thing. We were in a band and I'm really proud of that. And I think we should all hold on to that because we all want to have the sort of the enthusiasm of a child in a way. The naive enthusiasm is a beautiful thing. And again, I suppose, keeps you in touch with your authenticity. You're not just doing something because it's useful, beneficial or a good business 
idea but then those things are helpful on top and uh useful if we want to try to pay our mortgage or our rent but i think the biggest thing i would say now if i was if you were telling me about something you wanted to do or somebody else was coming to me for advice i would say structure your ideas structure them write them out set your goals plan them what is it you want from it and if you don't want to do that and you just want to do something for fun and see where it goes then think of it as as that it's something that's just fun and lovely and that's really great and we all need fun but if you want to do something with a goal write it out yeah that was that was what you said to me in in November when we when we saw each other and I was mentioning to you about an idea of mine that it was kind of a little bit up in the up in the air um and and still is but this was this was exactly what you said to me like be be kind of a bit more meticulous and and structured about how you want it to to look like so you can plan it out before it's happening rather than trying to get everything together in the moment as it's happening yes and then i suppose like allowing the 10%, 20% of obvious um, spontaneity and scrambling at the end of all the structured ideas. We have to be realistic as well, don't we, that you can't just have one big structured in-place plan. You've got to allow your creative little butterfly mind to float off and be whisked away on a nice thermal somewhere. So you... You name dropped Ranagrai. Um, I've been to see Ranagrai many times and they are amazing concerts. And I love seeing also, it's, well, I think it's the only time that I've seen you and Don working together. Um, and it's it's so nice to see to see you both together playing. And a lot of the, I mean, all of the music you write together. Is that right? Pretty much. I mean, I would really credit Don for most of the writing um he's the main writer he's the he writes all the lyrics um I would say I'm the organizer so I'm the one who has the ideas and then works out how to make them happen but he's the one who creates the the music that we then that we then uh, perform although I have written very you know lots of tracks as well and I've written lots of flute parts and and really again I mean it's so weird actually talking to you because it does make me really have to sort of delve into myself and my past 20 years and that doing something like that allows you to be true to yourself because mm. you are 100% I'm not accountable to anybody or any type of I should play it like this there are no shoulds involved only to myself and only to the band in that if we're ambitious which we are and if we want to do really well or we want to do a great performance, we have a responsibility to one another, but we aren't accountable to, did you phrase that correctly? Or was that the right dynamic that that composer asked of you? And I think that's, for me, that was very liberating. Equally happy to go and play Claire de Lune with BBC Concert Orchestra, don't get me wrong. Absolutely love that. But it's... I think it's so freeing to be able to, if it's within somebody's makeup, to feel that they they want to liberate themselves a little bit. I think it's it's really good. And maybe even if you only want to do something very classical, let's say you are 
you know you want you're a baroque you you focus on baroque or classical very classical music or renaissance um it's very set in how you would present that but it still might be amazing if you go and do some jazz singing or you know just go off pieces briefly because one could enhance the other yeah i i had that recently when we did this um event for international women's day and i haven't sung non-classically in front of people for I think it could be 10 years and it was yeah like you say so liberating to sing I sang um some sometime and it it was so nice to be able to liberate that part of my voice and for also other people who have only really known me as a classical singer to hear that side of me and also for them to then say to me that it fits you so well like it's so it's so you it's so true to who you are and it it you know it makes me think about what what is the kind of music that I want to be doing that represents me as a singer and me as a person because while I love singing classically and like I'm rehearsing for a Matthew Passion at the moment and I I love I love singing Matthew Passion but at the same time, there's another side of me that likes something a little bit more, a little bit more out there, a little bit more out of the box and things that classical singers don't usually do. That for me is something that I really like doing. Yeah. What's amazing, Kitty, um, and what I think if people can kind of try to follow these feelings, I suppose, um, without, again, without having to think, well, I should do this or I should sing in this style or that style. So you mentioned I, I appear in a ballet. I, I've appeared at the Royal Opera House in Hamburg, London and Brisbane doing this amazing ballet by a composer called Joby Tolbert, um, where it's possibly the piece that I will take to my grave that is most authentic to me I kind of, he wrote it, but I I went over to his flat when he was writing it. We went through the instruments together. It's all on bansuris. Um, and essentially it's got a big flute bansuri solo on stage in this magnificent tree, very amplified with loads of reverb. So you have this flute kind of blasting out through the opera house with an orchestra backing it. And it's the orchestra of Covent Garden, which is like my dream orchestra. So then when I step back from that and I think, well, accidentally, Joby discovered that I played those instruments because I was in a folk band, which I'd started because I loved folk music and I wanted to be in a band with my boyfriend. You know, so if you are authentic to yourself as well, and if you do believe in what you, just presenting what you love, so it might be that Kitty Bazalgette sings St Matthew's Passion for the rest of her life, but maybe there's a bit of Sondheim and Joni Mitchell or her own songs that cross-pollinate and you don't have to know that. And even at my age and no doubt in the next three decades that I hope to be a musician, three or four, who knows, um, I, I want to be considered as I get older, but I also want to be really open and I want to just allow myself to express myself always and be excited because you you just never know what might accidentally lead to something utterly tremendous 
just because you did something that you love. It also, this idea of, you know, something that was created because of wanting to wanting to play with your boyfriend and wanting to to set up something for for yourself, which was slightly away from from the classical style, but then led to something in like one of the most iconic classical venues. It's an amazing irony, isn't it? <laughs> which I kind of love. And I just think, well, isn't that, how wonderful is that? And I, I try like exceptionally hard to never pigeonhole anyone myself and never feel, I'm sure people do pigeonhole me, but I don't want to know that. Um, I was listening to a podcast yesterday with Anton Dubeck off uh, Strictly. I don't actually watch Strictly, but um, he said something great though. He was asked about social media and about how to deal with negative comments. And he said, oh, I don't I don't look at any of that. I don't. Um, he, he basically doesn't do any social media. Um, and that he just said, why? Why do I need to know any of those? We didn't used to prior to it being so available online, unless we read a, ra- a bad review in a physical paper. We didn't really know about those things so quickly. So. And I think I feel the same about what people think about me and my playing or who I am and what I do, that I don't, I'm not really too interested in that these days. <laughs> and maybe that is, as I said earlier, post COVID, that's really happened to me, but it's so refreshing. If I could give that feeling in a little bottle to every student who has imposter syndrome or worries about what other people think. Um, it's like a little elixir of life for me and I love it. Yeah, it's one of the things that I think it's a long process to find, to being able to let go of that. Um, and I know that at the moment for my for myself, I'm in that a little bit of, of the worries of what, what people might think if I do this, if I do that. Um, but it's a practice, I think. The more you do the things that you want to do without worrying or without changing your mind because of what people might think, which you may never know. Uh, the more you do that, the more you will be able to yeah, live live your life as you wish to do it and play the music that, that means the most to you. Totally, Kitty. I mean, I totally agree. And, and to that, I would probably add, be your own judge. Because what we do in asking for other people's opinions or for looking for people's approval is we base everything on their judgment. But actually, if you can come out of a concert and go, do you know what? I was crap tonight. And you know that you were crap. You don't need everyone else to tell you that. And you can totally reverse that. And you can come out of something and go, I might not be the world's best person at that, but I did really well. And I'm really happy about that. And did I love it? Yeah, I bloody loved it. <laughs> Trusting your own perception, because really isn't that what matters? Doesn't mean that we don't want other people's opinions. That's why we learn. That's why we go to conservatoires and it's brilliant. But once you're in the profession, if it becomes uh, destructive, that we wait for other people's reviews of us. I think it's really important to try and remove that that aspect of being a performer and judge yourself severely, but but be kind as well. 
Yeah, and I think this idea of you can judge you can judge yourself um, as long as it's done in a fair way. And because the idea of judging yourself is often, and I, I know I also talk about it in a, in a kind of negative way. And I forget that there can also be positive judgment. Um, but that's also what I try to do in a lot of the work that I do in, in conservatoires and, and privately to create that positive judge um, in you, not just the negative judge, so that you can have that balance and not only be listening to the one who tells you that you're rubbish. Oh, totally. And and isn't it, I mean, a known thing that we all we all talk to ourselves about the negatives far more than we do the positives and a negative stays within us far more and a negative occurrence stays is held on to far more than a positive. I remember when I first got to the academy, our head of woodwinds just said, and I think this is equally important in, in everything that you're doing and what this podcast is about. He said, whatever happens, don't compare yourself to anybody else. And now, again, if you're ambitious, which we all are, like it should be a great word, ambition, it's we or driven, where it's good to always want to better yourself. But if you're permanently comparing yourself to others, again, especially in this day and age with social media, which is bombarding us with everything, you're never going to really, I don't think, be happy with certain, you'll be happy with yourself, I suppose. And then also be able to just gently criticise yourself or know how you want to make yourself better. Um, I'm certainly not one of the best flute players in the world. I would love to be, but I'm really happy and very proud of what I do. And I know I've got loads more to learn and, and I can't wait to do that, you know. So it's exciting. And and if you, if we knew everything when we were 22, that would be really boring. I think you're such a good example of the joy of of lifelong learning uh and the joy of being in a process of of music making and creativity over the long term and i think that's also really important for for younger musicians to to see and be aware of that this, this keeps on going and and it's a joyful process absolutely it is and you know without wanting to sound cliched but what doesn't break you does make you stronger if the whole world was one big comfort zone we'd probably be really bored and actually again that goes back to my answer about covid and why did i like it well i really loved having to push myself outside of my comfort zone and suddenly life is much easier because you just jumped outside of that box and then the next box you need to jump outside of you've already done it once so the more that we can all do that, um, the truer we are to ourselves, I suppose. I feel like we could uh, we could talk about these these things for hours, but I'm aware you also you also have a an evening to to get on with. A couple a couple more things that you also just sort of referenced it actually. What has been the most challenging aspect of carving out your career? I mean. The irony of with all the answers I've been giving you is that actually I suffered horrendous imposter syndrome. You know, I found it really hard. Some of the things that I got as a performer, probably with things like um, recording 
on film soundtracks with people who are far more experienced than I was, um, turning up for gigs and thinking, I don't know if I'm good enough. And I think that's why I like to promote as much as I can what I feel now, because if only I could have felt that years ago and, and all the more credit to people like you for what you're doing. So I think that's hopefully spreading these kind of uh, outlooks and um, sort of mental well-being, I suppose, to, to help musicians. But I would say that that was my biggest challenge to overcome. And I, I didn't entirely believe in myself. And I had to really, really push through that. And that was not easy. What helped you to push through that? Well, like a dogged belief that I could do it. I could do it. I could stand on that stage in the opera house and do that. And it was okay. And I did do it. And then now I've done it lots. And each time you do that, you realise you can do it. Have you ever run a marathon, Kitty? (laughs) No, it's crossed my mind a couple of times. I think music is very like training for something like a marathon. You hit walls and they're hard and they hurt and they take lots of training and they take a lot of focus. I I like to use this analogy of throwing a dart at a bullseye, particularly when I'm in recording studios, for example. You arrive, you haven't seen the music, there might be something really hard and you need to focus the hell on those dots and get them right. And I just like this idea that you're so focused and you're just going to hit that bullseye with that dart. Um, I suppose it's the same if you are feeling insecure or you're lacking confidence. You just need to focus on who you are and what it is that you want to achieve and not let all those peripheral voices, be they real or be they your own crazy voices that they don't they don't get a look in they might come past to say hi but they they can't win this links quite nicely to the to the final question that I always ask here what is your advice to those looking for their authentic artistry believe in yourself and don't be scared because we all are certainly when we're younger and no doubt I'll feel differently in another in 10 years' time, but we're all influenced by what other people think. So we have to not let that in. Eliza, thank you so much for for giving me this hour of your time and explaining your own creative process and all the amazing things that you've been doing. It's been a pleasure. It's always a pleasure, Kitty, and I'm enamoured with everything you're doing and uh, keep doing it because it's wonderful. So thanks so much for having me. The feeling is completely mutual. I love having these kinds of conversations with Eliza. I feel so grateful to be able to call her family. She's been such a great role model, support and friend. And she's an amazing example of how leaving your comfort zone and following your curiosity can lead to unexpected and exciting opportunities. And for me, that has been such a huge inspiration as I've started my own career too. I'd love to know what you think about today's episode, what Eliza has had to say. So don't hesitate to get in contact on Instagram. 
If you are enjoying the podcast, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss our weekly uploads. You can also leave us a rating and review on whichever podcast platform you use and that's really helpful in getting this podcast discovered and listened to by more wonderful creatives. That's it for today. Join us next Friday for the following instalment of the Authentic Artistry podcast. Bye.